I pray that as we sing those words, that that really is your heart this morning, that you really do believe that your only hope is Jesus, that he's the only sure foundation, he's the only rock for any of us. This morning we have a lot of hopes and aspirations in life, we have things that we anticipate and look forward to, and we hope they will work out. It's natural to think in those terms as embodied souls, as human beings in this life, but my prayer for all of us is that our hope is only Jesus, because he's the only sure hope. He's the only certain foundation. If you would go with me in your Bibles this morning to Exodus 33, verse 18, and our passage will take us up through chapter 34, verse 6a. (laughs) Sorry to give you all the the letters there, but it's the very beginning of verse 6. We'll we'll stop there. So chapter 33, verse 18 to 34, the beginning of verse 6. We are continuing to work our way through the book of Exodus. So if you're visiting with us this morning, that's where we are. We've been going through the book of Exodus, and we're up at chapter 33, And at this point, we really are in the final stretch of the book, as I said last week. We are nearing the end, and we're even a little closer than it appears, because we're going to get, as I said last week, several chapters that repeat uh, the instructions for the tabernacle, the different curtains and uh, the construction and all of that. So we really are on the final stretch, and at this point in Exodus, we are in the aftermath of the golden calf, one of those... Uh, well-known and incredibly low points in the Bible, the story, the incident of the golden calf. We are after that. God has confronted the evil of the golden calf, and we are in the aftermath chapters of that, chapters 33 and 34. God, through Moses, is moving towards a renewal of the covenant. And that just reminds us, especially when we consider the ghastliness of chapter 32. It is breathtaking that by the end of chapter 34, we have a renewed covenant. We have God reunited with his people. Uh, He did not put them on some sort of extended probation for years and years. He did not uh, strike them dead and annihilate them as We saw with Moses' intercession, but instead he moves towards renewing the covenant with his people. And it's just such a testimony to the magnitude and power of God's grace. That God is a gracious God. This is the God of the Christian faith. The God of the Christian faith is a God who dispenses grace in super abounding ways. And this is an illustration of that great truth when we come to the Apostle Paul, the great preacher of God's grace. He will explain the intricacies of God's grace in Christ. And throughout the Bible, we get many illustrations like this that put God's grace on display. From the very beginning of chapter 3, right after God has sent a plague on his people, he is moving in a fast-moving train towards a renewal of the covenant, which we get at the end of chapter 34. And he is doing this gracious work by means of 
a mediator. So as we're reading these chapters, chapter 32, 33, 34, these are two huge words that we must keep in view. Grace and mediator. God is dispensing his grace. He's applying his grace. He's freely giving his grace. And he's doing it by means of this mediator, Moses. Last week, the focus was on God's presence. God delivers the very bad news to Israel through Moses that he will not go with them. He tells them that he will send an angel. And he will bring them into the promised land. But he himself will not go with them. That's the disastrous news as we read last week. That's the the very bad news that the Lord delivers through Moses to the people. They are a stiff-necked people. Stubborn and obstinate, unyielding, disobedient. They are a stiff-necked people, and if God goes with them, He will consume them on the way. So, in obedience to God's command, they take off their ornaments and wait to see what God will do. And there's discussion among commentators as, do we refer to this as repentance, what we read last week? Uh, And I think repentance is probably a strong word to use of what we see with the Israelites, especially when we consider what's coming uh, down the line. But we do at least recognize a a turning away from where they were before, at least an obedience, a willingness to say, okay, God, we give you these ornaments. We, We take off these ornaments. We purge ourselves of this Egyptian jewelry, and we set out on a new start. Of course, at this point, we are given a picture of Moses' intimate relationship with God. The tent of meeting, the speaking to God face to face as a friend, all of this prepares us for the intercession which Moses will bring to God on behalf of the people. So here are the people Given this very bad news, they begin to mourn. They obey God in taking off these ornaments. And then we're given this little parenthesis, this little section describing the intimate relationship that Moses enjoyed with the Lord. Immediately following that, as a setup, we get the intercession which Moses brings to God. And one request dominates. And it is, give us your presence. This was the sermon title for last week, Give Us Your Presence. That is the great theme of those first 17 verses of chapter 33. Moses is interceding on behalf of the people, and he tells the Lord, Lord, please go with us. Don't send a mere angel. Don't send a mere created being. Don't just give us the land, the temporal blessing. Give us yourself. Give us Yahweh. Give us the Lord. Give us the I am creator and redeeming God. The people are mourning and Moses is interceding. And so we get this in verses 15 to 16. And he said to him, Moses said to the Lord, if your presence will not go with me, 
do not bring us up from here. Now let me just pause for a moment there. Is that your attitude towards life? I mean, think about that. Is it the case that whatever path we take, whatever step we take, whatever door we open, whatever new season of life we enter, is that the mindset that we have? If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Now, of course, we recognize as Christians, we have God's presence always. But the heart behind this is a heart that recognizes that no matter where we get to, no matter how great that thing we may have or that experience we may experience or that season of life with all of its joys and pleasures, no matter how great that thing may be, it really is worthless without the Lord. It is worthless without God's presence. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known <clears throat> that I have found favor in your sight, <clears throat> I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? <clears throat> in other words, Moses says to the Lord, it's not merely that you do great things for us, God. It's not just that you clear our path. You, you remove the people from the land. You establish us in the land. You give us the land according to your promise. That's not enough, God. We will be known by your presence, whether or not you are with us, your people. Is not that the, is, is not that the one thing that distinguishes us from all the people, peoples on the earth, is that we have your presence. That the God who made the stars is with us. He is our God. That is what makes us different. We ended last week with God's gracious reply to Moses, and it comes in two places. We see it first in verse 14. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you Rest, And then we see in verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Now this is really interesting. God tells Moses that he's going to go with the entire people on Moses' account. God is pleased with Moses. Moses has found favor in God's sight. And listen to this. It is in and through that relationship that God will maintain his presence with the people as a whole. It is in the context of the relationship that God has with Moses. It is within that sphere, within that context, that God will go with all the people as a nation. I would submit to you that this is a magnificent picture of the gospel. And I was saying in our group this past week that it, I, I would love to sit in a room with a group of rabbis and talk about the relationship between God and Moses and Israel. Because it is so abundantly clear as you go through this narrative that it points beyond itself. 
We're not looking at something that is uh, in and of itself filled with meaning, period. It is full of meaning that spills over into the future. It anticipates something greater. It is clear that Moses functions as a type. The one who has favor in God's eyes, the one who pleases God, is the means for saving the whole people. Is this not precisely what we get in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, which I read last week? This is my beloved son. This is at Jesus' baptism. He comes up out of the water. The heavens open. The voice from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I would say to all of us this morning, those are probably the most precious words in the whole Bible. They're the most significant for our salvation. They're the most firm and solid. The father is pleased with his son. And it's in the context of that great truth that we get this language throughout the New Testament that we are in Christ. Have you ever noticed that language, especially in Paul's letters and especially in Ephesians? Constantly Christians are described as being in Christ, in Christ, in him. And then when that's not used, it's through Christ. What are we meant to take from that? It is in the sphere of this, the Father being pleased with the Son. It is within that sphere that we have great hope. It is only being placed in this pleasing Christ that we have any hope at all. Apart from being placed within this pleasing Christ, we would all be condemned, period. There is no hope whatsoever apart from being in him. And all that we're reading as Moses goes and he talks to God and as Moses prays and God relents and God shows grace and God forgives and God renews and all of that is meant to point us to what God does for us in, exclusively in, Jesus Christ. The title for the sermon today is Show Me Your Glory, part one. After receiving God's reply to his first request, Moses makes another one. And we get it in verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And this really does kick off a new section that runs from chapter 33, verse 18, up through 34, 9. And what we're going to do this morning is we'll cover up through the beginning of verse 6, And then we'll do the remaining verses next time as we begin to look at God's name and how he reveals himself there to Moses on the mountain. So if you would please stand with me as we read God's word together. So we're going to read the whole passage up through verse 9, but we'll cover... Most of verse 6 up through verse 9 next week. This is the word of God. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. 
But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now let me just pause there for a second just, and just make this very clear. God is incorporeal, meaning that God does not have a body. So we're not meant to see God as some giant human-like being in the sky who's just like a giant. He's much larger than we are. So he has this massive hand the size of this room and his head is the size of whatever. We're not meant to understand God in those terms. As Jesus says in John 4, God is spirit. But this is a way in human terms to depict what God is going to do. Chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, proclaimed the name of Yahweh. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And i got to go ahead and lean into verse 10, because it's so wonderful. Uh, And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. You can go ahead and be seated. In other words, God said, Okay, again, he said, yes. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our time and that he would use his word to sanctify us as he promises to do, John 17 and many other places, that this would be a very fruitful time for us as we sit under God's word and as the Holy Spirit uses the means that he uses to sanctify us. Father, we're grateful for this time together. We thank you for each other. And the fact, Lord, that you work in each of our hearts in unique, specific ways. The, the meaning of the text is, is what it is. But, Lord, you apply that to our lives in manifold ways, in ways that uh, oftentimes are, are so deep and so shocking and surprising. So, Lord, we praise you that you are uh, sovereign over our hearts. And not just our hearts, but the very depths 
of our hearts, the things in our hearts we don't even know about or see. Father, we thank you that you use your word as you faithfully have promised to do. And God, we come this morning with expectancy. We come trusting that you sanctify by your word. And Lord, we we ask that you would do that in each of our hearts, that not a single one of us here this morning who is a believer would leave unscathed by your gracious work, the work of your spirit. God, we pray that you would mercifully sanctify us, make us more like your perfect, well-pleasing, obedient son. God, we pray for anyone here this morning who is an unbeliever, whether it is a a child of a Christian family, uh, Lord, or someone who's a visitor, or maybe someone who has been a part of this church for a long time, and they just truly are not converted. Lord, would you powerfully save this morning? Would you, the God who is abounding in grace and steadfast love and forgiveness, who is slow to anger, who is merciful and faithful and kind, would you save this morning any among us who is an unbeliever, we pray. God, we pray that your sovereign purposes would be carried out and that you would guide the remainder of this service in your wisdom. Help us to focus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we can divide this passage into two major parts, and those will be our points for this morning. You'll see those up on the screen here. Two major parts. So in verses 18 to 23, we get the request and a response. So request and response. Moses asks a question of the Lord. He he requests something of God, and God responds to him. God tells him what he is going to do. He gives him the answer. And then in verses 1 to 6, we get the assignment and appearance. God tells Moses what he is to do in the intervening time. And then by the end of that period, we get God appearing to Moses. So request and response, an assignment and appearance. So let's look first at request and response. And for that, look with me at the end of chapter 33, verses 18 23. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord or Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. That's an interesting phrase there. You shall not see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. You know, at first glance, this question seems abrupt. Just boom. It just kind of falls into the text. And on this, by the way, let me say this. And that's what, if if you're going to college or you're thinking about biblical scholarship, that's one of the ways that uh, biblical scholars have sort of reinvented many of the texts is that they, they come to, it's called form criticism, and they come to texts like this, and they see these places where it doesn't flow as they think it ought to flow, 
And they begin to say, okay, this is a separate source, and this is a separate source. And so at some point, much later than is claimed, you get some priestly redactor coming along and patching together these various texts, and that's why it seems a little kind of mismatched, and it doesn't seem to fit. Well, often I think that's just a failure to truly analyze the text. It's just a failure to see the, the context, and it's a, a, a quick going to that answer rather than taking time to deal with the text as it flows in context. At first glance, this question seems abrupt, and on the surface, it seems to switch gears too quickly. But what we see upon further reflection is that it actually follows perfectly from the previous question. Moses' concern is God's presence. And now, after receiving God's reply, he seeks to be reassured by a personal encounter with the Lord. And in that sense, it flows very naturally from what he's just been told. And he asks the question quickly, right after God has told him what he will do. It is as though Moses is saying, Okay, Lord, you have said you are going with us, And that I have found favor in your sight. So now, please show me your glory as further reassurance that we have your presence. Okay, we're going to have your presence. You're going to go with me. You're going to go with us. So show me your glory. Stamp it. Sign it. Reassure me, Lord. And and just a little note here. Isn't it amazing that God does that kind of thing? you know, I mean, we do that with our children. You know, we, we, we follow up what we've said. It's not as though Moses is saying, I doubt you, God. We get the same thing in, in chapter 15 with Abraham. He, he wants to know how he's going to know that this is the case. And God, God moves into that space. God is a reassuring God. He is a father to his people. He moves into our weakness. He reassures, and he reassures, and he reassures. And in that sense, that's what we're reading all along in Genesis as we get Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And you just keep reading the same thing over and over and over again, these reiterations. It is because God wants to make clear to his people, this is what I am going to do. If you've forgotten, or you're doubting, or you're wondering, let me tell you again what I am going to do. Further reassurance. In addition to the abruptness, which you do find as you read through it, the request also seems a little odd in the context of Exodus. This is sort of an odd request. And you may not think that. You may think, well, why is it odd? Well, it is odd because we would say, hasn't God already shown Moses his glory? I mean, what have we been reading all these chapters What are are all of these experiences and all of these interactions that we've been reading about? So let me just kind of go through and trace that a little bit. Chapter 16, verse 10. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. So Moses saw God's glory along with the people. Chapter 24, verses 9 to 10. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. 
There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders saw God's glory, did they not? Chapter 24, verses 16 to 18, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. In other words, let me paraphrase that, Moses is in the glory cloud for over a month. He's there inside of the glory cloud. He's not outside the glory cloud looking on. He's inside of that thing. However, we are to understand how God is manifesting himself through the cloud. And then we read last week, chapter 33, verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. So this is an ongoing thing, that there's this little tent outside of the camp, and Moses would go. We read that last week. Moses would go out there. The people would stand at their door, and they would all watch as Moses moves to the tent. And then when Moses got to the tent, the Lord would descend in the glory cloud at the front of the tent, and the people would bow in worship, and Moses would speak with the Lord. So how are we to understand this? It's, a, it's an odd request that at this stage, Moses would ask to see God's glory. Although there is much mystery surrounding how exactly God manifests himself in Exodus and throughout the Old Testament, I mean, think about Jacob wrestling with God. Think about God appearing to Hagar. Uh, think about all of the instances of God coming down and going up as he's interacting with Abraham or the three at the tent in Genesis 18. So many different places where it's just very mysterious. It is mysterious how exactly God manifests himself throughout. Although that is the case, there seems to be something deeper that Moses is after here. He's after something deeper, something more. Which is why God explains that he will only partially appear to Moses, showing his back, not his face. So in other words, the fact that God goes there and begins to explain the dynamics of this appearance suggests that Moses is asking for something more, something deeper than what's gone on in the past. Verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. In the following verses, God goes on to explain that his glory will pass by and he will cover Moses with his hand in the cleft of a rock. Moses will come up and stand on a rock and God will cover him. Once again, God does not have a body, but he will, it is as though God will reach out and cover Moses' eyes and he will walk past Moses and then he will remove his hand and once he has passed by, Moses can see his back. And it's interesting, the Hebrew word here for back is plural. Moses will be able to see his backs. Well, what does that mean? Well, one commentator, Walter Kaiser, suggests that it's the after effects of his glorious passing. It's the splendor from his passing 
by. To see God's face, as it were, cannot happen for sinful man. So whatever it is that we've read about in, in, in Genesis and Exodus, all of these interact, interactions and the relationship between God and the angel of the Lord and all that we've read and all the mis- mystery that cloaks that, one thing we must conclude is that it cannot happen that sinful human beings see God's face. This must await our future glorification. And how do we know that when we will see God's face as the angels see God, as the angels are in God's presence, seeing his face, however we are to understand that, and that is couched once again in anthropomorphic terms, in human terms, to to behold God, to see him as he is. We read of this great hope. By the way, what what a hope. Something to rejoice about in the hour of death that's coming for all of us. When it comes, we should be rejoicing because of what this says. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We will see the Lord. Whatever it means, whatever it is that God withheld from Moses will not be withheld from us in glory. This is what we look forward to as Christians. This is the idea of the beatific vision. This is what theologians for thousands of years now have talked about as the end goal of humanity. To behold God, to see him in his essence, to see God as he is, and to do that forever as he is infinite. This is what we one day will experience, and this is what Moses could not experience in his request to God. The important thing to keep in mind here is Moses' request in Moses' request, is that it has to do with God's willingness. Now listen to this. This is really important to put this in context. Moses' request has to do with God's willingness to forgive Israel and move forward with them after the golden calf incident. What oftentimes happens is this passage, show me your glory, and then the passing by and all of that, it gets taken out of its context. And that's always tricky, right? When we take passages out of their context, we will be able to to find truth in those passages. And and some of what's said there will come into our understanding. But but what's really going on needs the context. And so we have to remember that we are in the context of God's willingness to forgive and to give his presence. That is the context. That is what Moses needs to be reassured about. And so God's appearance to Moses will be along these lines. This is specifically and precisely what is going on. And so we read this in verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This response really only makes sense fully in light of the golden calf. This is the way that God, God doesn't say, I will show you my blazing power. 
This is what he says. Goodness, grace, mercy. That's what all of this is about. God is reassuring Moses that he is the God of grace. The God who will forgive Israel's sin and at the same time remain just. And we'll talk about that as we come to how God reveals it. About holding guilty sinners and punishing iniquity. We'll talk about the way in which God does that. We'll talk about that next week. But for now, what I want you to see is that the focus is on God's good, gracious, merciful forgiveness. The focus here is clear. Moses is seeking to be assured of God's forgiveness, and God will provide the clearest revelation of that in his own way. So here's the question, how? How will God make that clear to Moses? And this is interesting. Yes, God will show up as he has at other times. God will show up. We will get a theophany, an appearance of God. He will manifest himself. But even more significantly, and this is really important to notice here, even more significantly, God will proclaim who he is as he shows up. Notice that. He will put manifestation together with proclamation in the perfect way at the perfect time. Following the golden calf incident. This will be a revelation of his glory, his name, and his goodness. And there is a sense in which here these are synonyms. His glory, his name, and his goodness. And of course they are distinct and there's a distinct way in which we understand these words. His glory, his heaviness, his splendor, his name, his reputation, his renown, his goodness. His saving benefits like grace and mercy. But here we're meant to say that, meant to see that these are different ways of describing essentially the same thing. The I am. This is who the I am is. So we have it. The request and the response. Moses asks to see God's glory, and God says yes. And explains how this will be done. It will be done with manifestation and proclamation. So let me just kind of step back from this and make a few observations that also draw out some implications. So just several of these. First, it is Jesus Christ who makes God known to us. To see Christ is to see the Father. And we get this, uh, you'll remember uh, for Advent, well, at the very end of Advent, as we came into Christmas on Christmas Eve, both in the morning and the evening, we looked at John 1.14. And part of that larger section is what we read in John 1.18. And there it says, no one has ever seen God. And you read that and you scratch your head a little bit because you're like, oh, well, Moses saw God and the Israelites saw God and Jacob saw God and Abraham saw God. And you kind of go on and on and you have all of these instances. And yet there's a sense in which... No one has seen God. We're, we're meant to hold both of those as true. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, 
He has made him known. Who is this only God? It's the Word, the Word who is both with God and the Word who is God. The Word has manifested him. The Word sees God, knows God, God the Father. So we read this in verse 20 in our passage. You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Do you notice, I pointed that out earlier. Do you notice how seeing God's face is here equated to seeing him? And there's a sense in which if you haven't seen his face, you haven't seen him. And and yet you you can see him without seeing his face. Both of these things are at work. And it's meant to point us to this one, Jesus Christ, who manifests God perfectly. We also read in John 14, 8 to 9, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. This is basically the same question. That was asked by Moses. Show us the Father, Jesus, and we'll be good. Just do that, and we'll be good to go. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? This life-changing manifestation of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. By the way, when you open up your Bible and you read the New Testament, you read what the apostles have written, that's what we are reading. Eyewitness accounts of the heaviness and the splendor of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the only thing that can account for a historical phenomenon like the Apostle Paul, this staunchly committed Pharisaical Jew who turns his back on it only to be persecuted from town to town to town, preaching Christ with such earnest conviction. What historical phenomenon makes sense of that? It's because Paul saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. He saw the splendor and the weight of the God of Israel in Christ Jesus, the Lord of glory. It's interesting, too, when we read Mark chapter 6, verse 48, we get a little allusion back to this passage. There in Mark 6, we have the disciples on the sea there, and they're tossed to and fro. And Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. And it's a curious little phrase there. It's like, what's going on? Why is he going to pass by them? He's just sort of walking on the sea, going for a stroll? Or is he going out to his disciples? He's going out because he sees that they're troubled. What's going on? And here the language is the same that we find in Exodus 33 and 34. And it's meant to point to Jesus as God, that here we have the glory of God passing in front of the disciples, just as Moses requested that God's glory pass in front of him. Second, God is sovereign in his application of mercy. Why do I say that? Well, Paul quotes from this passage in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 16. He says this, as we read in our call to worship, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In other words, what we are to take from a passage like this is that God freely dispenses his grace. He can dispense his grace. He has every right 
to dispense his grace, and he does so according to his infinite wisdom. He is the sovereign dispenser of grace. Grace and mercy go, grace and mercy flow as God dictates in his perfect wisdom. And God in his wisdom has chosen to give his mercy and his grace to Israel even after the golden calf. He chose to give his grace and mercy to Paul even after he hunted down Christians. He chose to give his grace and mercy to Peter even after he denied Christ. And he has chosen to give his grace and mercy to us even after fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. With all the things that are part of your Ephesians 2, 1-3 life. All those things that were part of walking in darkness. God chose to give you grace. As you were in that moment a child of wrath. He chose to give you his grace. Not because of anything he saw in you. But because he is the sovereign dispenser of his grace for his glory. It is not dependent on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. And so, we praise God. We're grateful to God. And we serve God, not self. This is what it looks like to realize these these truths, to meditate on these truths, to internalize and appropriate these great truths. We praise Him. We give Him thanks And we serve Him wherever He calls us. Third, notice that hearing is the focus in this passage. Now, when you think of this passage, you may immediately think of seeing. Moses asked that God would show him his glory. And so he's going to see something. And in fact, Moses does see something, uh, but not really much. I mean, he sees the back. He sees the after effects. And God has already showed up in his glory in manifold ways. The emphasis of this passage is on what Moses hears. And this is meant to remind us of the importance of Scripture and the key place in redemptive history that we inhabit. As we have the Spirit dwelling within us, and we have these Bibles in front of us, these precious things from Genesis to Revelation, we have God's written word. This is how God shows his glory. He speaks and we listen. Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. John chapter 20, verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? He's engaging with Thomas. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. How is it that we believe without seeing? Because of hearing. We hear the word of the Lord. So listen, if you're neglecting the Bible, you're neglecting the very means by which God saved you, and the very means by which God is saving you. Remember that salvation is present, past, and future. God has saved us. He is saving us, and He will save us. And He does this from beginning to end by means of His 
word. He does this by his revelation of his glory in Scripture. So we see request and response, and now we come to assignment and appearance. Look with me at verses 1 to 6, the very first part of that verse. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and Proclaimed, And I stop there because it ties in with what we've already seen. Next week, we're going to look at what God proclaims. But here we end with the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. The first thing we notice here is that seeing God's glory is no passive affair. Moses has work to do. Do you notice that in the text? God gives him an assignment with a set of tasks to be carried out before this encounter is to take place. And I remember the first time I, I, you know, back in my early 20s when I started really reading the Bible, I remember reading this and being like, okay, that glory passage, that glory passage is it's, it's in chapter 33, but no, it's actually not in chapter 33, it's in chapter 34. There's this little bit of narrative, I don't even know why that's even there. There's a little bit of narrative sort of leading up to it. And then you begin to see how these things are connected. God gives Moses an assignment. He gives him tasks to do. He gives him works to do before he will see his glory. And let me just say this, seeing involves work. Seeing God's glory, knowing God, walking with God is no passive thing. And maybe that's your conception in our sort of superficial, sappy, devotional culture. Maybe that's your conception of relating to God, is that it's more passive in nature, that you just sort of wait and hum. It's almost sort of Buddhist in a way. You just sort of wait and hum, and you passively sort of empty yourself, and God just sort of comes to you. That's not the way the Christian scriptures lay it out. We work, and we strive, and we study, and we yearn, and we pray And God reveals himself to us in his word. God comes to us. He helps us. He strengthens us. He uses us. But it's no passive affair. This is no sitting idly by and just waiting for God to do something in my heart, like getting struck by lightning. This is folly. This is not Christian. This is something else. Seeing involves work. Seeing can be strenuous. The assignment is threefold. First, Moses is to carve out new tablets upon which God will rewrite the Ten Commandments. Second, Moses is to make preparations, rise early, and come up to Mount Sinai in the morning to present himself to Yahweh. 
Third, Moses is to diligently guard the sanctity of the mountain. No other people are to come up, and no animals are to graze nearby or within sight. And I I imagine Joshua is probably responsible for this sort of thing. That's, That's the kind of thing we've seen before. Probably not Aaron. He dropped the ball. It's probably Joshua at this point who's overseeing. Let no one come up. Let no one graze so that they can see up on the mountain. Then we are told that Moses does exactly as God told him, as the Lord had commanded him, verse 4, as the Lord had commanded him. No, this goes back to the beginning of the Bible. We saw this with Noah. Genesis chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. We saw this with Abraham. Genesis 17, verse 23, then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house were bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day. Didn't even wait a day. That very day, as God had said to him. These men, Noah, Abraham, Moses, these men are pointers to the obedience of Christ. It is Christ who did precisely what the Father sent him to do precisely what the Father had given him to do. And throughout his earthly life, he always did the Father's will. And so when we go back in biblical history and we see this pattern of obedience, obeying God, once again, it is pointing forward to the perfectly obedient Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In other words, in him there is no sin disobedience. These men, Noah, Abraham, and Moses, also function as examples of a true believer. They show us what it looks like to be a true believer, to hear and heed the Word of God. I I heard recently John MacArthur talking about this, saying true believer and obedience go together. Disobedience to God and true believer are going different roads. Remember, narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And there are few who find it. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Broad with disobedience. Broad with doing my own thing. Broad with seeking self. But narrow is the way. Narrow is the gate. This is the way of obedience to God. And it has always been that way since the very first verses of the Bible, since Cain and Abel, and even going back to Adam and Eve. To hear and heed the word of God is intrinsic to being a Christian. To not hear and to disobey the word of God is what it looks like to be an unbeliever. As we come to the end of our passage for today, we see that God keeps his promises. He carries out his word. As he will go on to say, he is faithful. So verses 5 to 6, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. In other words, what's happening here? God did exactly what he said he was going to do. Well, guess what? He always does. He always does. Exactly what he says. And that's the reason why when we read the epistles, 
when we read the gospel, when we read these promises in the Bible, our hearts are just so enlarged with joy because we know it's really true. It's really going to happen. No one can take it away. No one can undo it. If God says he will do something for us, he will in fact do it and nothing can stop him. He is faithful and omnipotent. Just as God said, he interacts with Moses with appearance and proclamation in sight and in word. But the one thing we cannot lose sight of here is the covenant. And I'm going to end this morning on this note. In the middle of all of this is that set of tablets. You may have forgotten about those tablets. You know, they, Moses has those things going up the mountain with those two tablets. And he's all by himself. He's getting up there in age. Moses has those two tablets walking up that mountain, and he stands before the Lord with those tablets in his hands. These are the two tablets of stone, the covenant documents that will hold the Ten Commandments. And notice that they are mentioned at the end of verse 34, right before God descends. And Moses took in his hand two tablets of stone. That's the last thing that's said before God descends. We need to see that. It's really important. God descends into, God comes down to a man holding stone tablets. That's the picture. So if you had a picture of Moses any other way, maybe hands in the pocket, uh, hands behind his back, maybe even shielding his eyes, get rid of that. I want you to see him holding these stone tablets. Because that's exactly what the text says. Moses has cut new ones. And now he stands before the Lord as the covenant mediator waiting for God to renew the covenant with his stiff-necked people. This is a God of grace. This is the Christian God. This is the God of glory. The maker of the stars. The creator of all that exists. So let me just say to you this morning, I don't know where everyone is in in your life and in your thinking, but what a wonderful time to return to him. This notion of turning back to the Lord. Wherever you are, and and maybe, maybe you've gotten yourself strung out in some sin. Maybe you've gotten yourself sort of lost in the forest. And it's dark and it's murky. It's foggy and it's heavy. Return to the Lord. This is the God to whom you are turning. This is the grace and the mercy of God. And if you've never turned to him, turn to him today. Trust in him today as you consider the weight of his glory, the weight of his goodness, the weight of his grace and his mercy. We confess our sins to a God who hears us and who forgives us. Let his grace be like a beacon of light, a lighthouse in the midst of the fog of sin. Come to this God and find rest for your soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures and we thank you for this passage which is just truly awesome as 
you show up and as you proclaim who you are and God, as you do all of that in the context of the golden calf and, and you do it to just magnify your gloriously gracious purposes through the mediator for this sinful people. God, how we see a picture of the gospel there is we think about Christ and our sinfulness and how stiff-necked we have been and often are and you are gracious to us in and through Christ. We praise you, Father, and we pray that our hearts would be full of obedience to you. As imperfect as our obedience is, we pray that we would seek you and obey you, trust you, and for many this morning, perhaps that we would return to you, even in this day, in this moment, wherever we are, that we would return to this living, powerful, and gracious God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.